from the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins. Well, good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Washington Watch. Coming up. Right now, it is up to us to decide our fate and to choose freedom over oppression. That was Cuban-born American Maximo Alvarez speaking at the Republican convention last night, summing up the choice Americans have in this year's election. John Hines, reporter with One America News, joins me with analysis of the first night of the GOP convention in just a moment. And as we were talking yesterday, it is the policies of the two parties that provide the greatest contrast. 85% of voters in a recent Pew poll say they saw very few similarities in the agendas of the two presidential candidates, the highest ever recorded by Pew and 35 points higher than two decades ago. One policy area that leads in the contrast is the issue of life and the unborn. Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony List, joins us to talk life and her new book, Life is Winning. Speaking of Republicans, one of the resolutions passed by the RNC in Charlotte dealt with the Southern Poverty Law Center. Tyler O'Neill, senior editor of PJ Media, is here with the details on that story. And the politics of Corona. Dr. Taryn Clark is here on how the left is politicizing the treatments for coronavirus, and it could be costing us lives. Also, as researchers race to develop a vaccine for the coronavirus, will governments mandate vaccination? Dr. Jeff Barrow, Senior Vice President for Bioethics and Public Policy, is here with answers. The website, TonyPerkins.com, if you're on Twitter, it's at T. Perkins, same on Parler. Now, with all that is facing America in these uncertain times, Christians in this country can't quarantine or isolate themselves from their duty to God. The Bible says that we should seek the peace of the city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. In America's government, we're a government by the people, where all citizens have a governing role. We must be good stewards of the responsibility we've been given and vote in local and national elections. And as we pray and as we vote, we must stand firm on the truth of God's word. You know, we've talked about this many times on this program. Every election is pivotal, but the 2020 presidential election stands to send America in one of two very different trajectories. Each week until the election, FRC and FRC Action will host a special Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast to equip you to pray, to vote, and to stand for biblical truth. We'll have experts, elected leaders, and Christian leaders join us for these half-hour programs that will help you see through the fog that's been created by the biased lenses of the traditional media. Join us for our first Pray, Vote, Stand broadcast tomorrow night, Wednesday, August the 26th, 70 days from Election Day. At 7 p.m. Eastern, we'll be streaming from PrayVoteStand.org. That's PrayVoteStand.org. If you forget it, just go to TonyPerkins.com. The first night of the RNC convention is in the books, but before we get into the upcoming days of the event, what were the highlights from last night? What were the real contrast between what the Republicans did last night and what the Democratic Party did last week? Joining me now with more One American News Network reporter John Hines. John, John, welcome back to the program. Oh, Tony, it's great to be with you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having having me on. Let me uh, play another short clip from last night. Uh, This 
uh, is a little ex- a little longer clip of what I began the program with Mr. Alvarez, a Cuban-born American who, who I think really summed up the choice that is before us in this election. Bobby, play that clip, please. I may be a Cuban-born, but I am 100% American. This is the greatest country in the world. And I said this before. If I gave away everything that I have today, it would not equal 1% of what I was given when I came to this great country of ours. The gift of freedom. John, that for me was a powerful moment. In fact, as uh, Mr. Alvarez began to choke up, I I found myself choking up and, and thinking how great of a country this really is. Well, he's absolutely right. Coming from Cuba, he has a tremendously uh, powerful story. And uh, he spoke and he said basically his message was, I have seen this movie before. Uh, I have seen ideas like this before. And he said that he was there to tell us uh, that uh, we cannot let them take over our country. And he presented a hopeful message a hopeful message. And I think that uh, I was counting last night, actually, and the word hope or a derivative thereof came up 14 times. And I think that's a crucial difference between perhaps the Republican uh, convention and the Democratic one so far, is that they are talking about hope. And if you talk to Christians or you talk about the Christian journey, uh, one of the things they always talk about is hope. A human can often endure a lot of challenges if there is hope. And so in in order to present a, a compelling case for re-election, the president and the Republican National Committee and the convention need to uh, talk about hope. I think that uh, Maximo Alvarez, his story is one of hope, and he presented that as a cautionary tale, a cautionary tale to a generation which I think to one extent or another maybe uh, is not as familiar with the false promises of uh, socialism and uh, and what we see in places like Cuba and Venezuela. Yeah, that's a really good point, John, because, you know, the the Berlin Wall, Eastern Europe, where communism really had a grip on that uh, region of the world since World War II, um, you know, that wall came down in the early 90s. And so you have a generation basically that has grown up with very just pockets of communism. I don't know communist China, but that's on the other side of the ocean. Uh, and it's 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 seen differently. But we're not teaching that in our schools today. And so these real life accounts of those who have come from communist countries to a place of hope and promise, it, it speaks volumes. And it's in sharp contrast to what we heard last week at the Democratic Convention about all that was wrong with America. All that was wrong with America, and, you know, uh, (laughs) they couldn't get off the subject of COVID-19, which I guess is dominating the the headlines. But, you know, if they didn't talk about COVID-19 and there was no COVID-19, what else would they have talked about? There really wasn't a lot there if you take away COVID-19, which really points out that they've – I think they put their – their eggs in the basket of of uh, COVID-19 and, and laying that, the blame of that, at the feet of the president. 
And I think that's a risky strategy because if the American people don't buy that, then they they will fail or have to find something else. But fundamentally, the American people are a hopeful people, and they yeah. want to be able to hope for something. That's why uh, Maxima Alvarez was so compelling. John, I think that is a, a, a key observation I want to go back to that the Democrats focus. It was actually two things, the coronavirus and how bad Donald Trump is. So it's the, the virus yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. And, and Trump, bad, really bad. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But the, 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 you notice this because even the bulk of the media, you know, and, and, and we're thankful for One America News that is out there now that is giving a, a, a clear look at what is really happening in the nation. But the media has joined in with this spreading of fear of the coronavirus so that really the fear of the virus is worse than the virus itself. And we're seeing that as a result of the shutdowns that continue, that the economic fallout, the emotional and social fallout is worse than the virus itself. Yes, I think that's true. And uh, certainly the Democrats are are, uh, attempting to make use of that um, and uh, putting that, laying that blame uh, at the feet of the president, which uh, in the long run, I don't think it's going to be an effective strategy. I don't think they're going to get a lot of traction with it. And I think that you're going to see uh, the Republican National Convention uh, with today's theme, Land of Promise, um, and the lineup of people they have uh, today. Uh, tonight, uh, including Nick Sandman, who, of course, uh, was out uh, as a part of the March for Life and uh, right. encountered that protester. Um, so I think that they'll they'll be able to bring the subject back and uh, present something which I think will resonate with the American people going forward. John Hines, I've heard some comment that, you know, if the if the Republicans just stopped after last night, they would still be ahead of the Democrats after their entire week uh, of uh, broadcast that they did last week. I think you're right. And um, one thing I thought was very interesting, Tony, and I, I think it's been overlooked, is the first speaker, <clears throat> who was probably the shortest speaker, was uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan of New York. And uh, I thought it was remarkable. You have essentially the most high-profile Catholic in America speaking on behalf of a non-Catholic president at the Republican National Convention, not for Joe Biden, who is a Catholic and hopes to be president, but for a non-Catholic president at the Republican National Convention. He knows Donald Trump very well. He's familiar with Mr. Trump's foibles, uh, whatever one wants to make of those, and still he was there. The other interesting thing is uh, he hails from Wisconsin, He was Archbishop of Milwaukee for many, many years, and Wisconsin has the highest proportion of Catholics of any of those swing states of Ohio, Pennsylvania, uh, Michigan, and Minnesota, 25 percent in Wisconsin. And uh, he's still very well liked there. Um, And so I thought that that was a very, uh, very skillful and shrewd way to send a message of pro-life Uh, traditional values to a constituency with which that will resonate uh, come Election Day in a swing state, a very important swing constituency in a swing state. And Mm. I thought it was very interesting. Um, And I think that's probably the most uh, overlooked 
um, speaker uh, from last night and perhaps potentially the speaker who may have ultimately uh, the most in, impact in, in a swing state. Well, that's a very interesting observation. I also think it speaks to, going back to your first point, a Catholic uh, speaking at a uh, you know non-Catholic um, uh, for a non-Catholic president who who has issues, um, but yes, I think it speaks yes. to the value that this administration has placed on religious freedom that has brought brought yes. people of Orthodox faith um, that disagree theologically on issues together over this one fundamental principle of the freedom of religion, which we saw attacked systematically in the last eight years of the previous administration, and no doubt would be under attack again if Joe Biden and Kamala Harris were elected. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's, that's, I think that's probably why he was there. I think that uh, he's sending a message which may or may not be too subtle. Uh, which I can guarantee you, uh, people in uh, Catholics in, in Milwaukee are going to notice that, and they're probably going to keep it in mind when they get a vote in November. All right, John Heinz, One America News Network. Thanks so much for joining us, Tony. Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure. Your show is wonderful. A great interview. Great, thank you, John Heinz, One America News. If you uh, if you not checked them out, do so. Uh, if you don't have them on your cable network, you can, uh, you can download their app. But a good resource for you, good source of information. All right, when we come back, the Republican Party platform and the Democratic Party platform provide contrast on a number of issues. But one that is, uh, I would have to say, stands out from all the rest is the issue of life and the unborn. Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony List, is here next to talk about that and her new book. Don't go away. Do Christians have a biblical obligation to participate in government? Do Christians have a duty to vote? And if so, what principles should inform them while casting their ballots? How should pastors think about politics, and how can they shepherd their congregations well during an election season? The gospel of Jesus Christ has implications for all areas of our life, including politics. Christians must be prepared to grapple with the moral issues of our day, the reality of our two-party system, and follow our Christian convictions to their logical end by voting for candidates that support clear biblical values. Family Research Council has partnered with 21 state family policy councils for a new edition of Biblical Principles for Political Engagement. This booklet provides biblical wisdom and clear answers to pivotal questions to help you navigate the political landscape. This publication exists to facilitate careful thinking about issues and encourage God-honoring political engagement that filters all issues and candidates through a biblical worldview. To read the full publication, visit frc.org engage. Masculinity in America has never been under attack the way it is today. We've reached the point where the term itself is considered toxic or offensive to many. The consistent message in our nation is that masculinity by nature is bad and is the root cause of many of the problems plaguing our society. From his experience as a military combat officer and ordained minister of the gospel, Lieutenant General William Boykin has seen and dealt with firsthand the breakdown of leadership in our nation by the lack of godly men living lives of biblical purpose. In his latest book, Man to Man, Rediscovering Masculinity in a Challenging World, he addresses the essential elements of manhood as a provider, an instructor, a defender, a battle buddy, and a chaplain. 
and explains how to personally develop these traits and pass them to the next generation. Get your copy today of Man to Man, wherever books are sold. Hey, Matt. Hey, Hannah. What's going on? Why so gloomy? Well, I'm a little disappointed. I had a lot planned to do during the stay-at-home time, and I just didn't do it. Oh, yeah? What did you have planned that you didn't get to do? Well, I was actually hoping I would finally be able to get time to do a regular Bible reading routine, and I started a couple of times. I just didn't stick with it. Don't be too down on yourself. Starting a new routine can be hard, but one way to help is to join in with others and to have a good game plan. I think I have a good solution for you. Oh, yeah? Tony Perkins and FRC are doing a two-year study in the Word. They have it all mapped out. When did they start? I, I would be so far behind. Oh, that's not a problem. You can literally jump in any time. There's a daily reading just a couple of chapters a day with questions to help you think about what you're reading. Nice. Where can I find this? Go to frc.org Bible and you can get started. Where's that again? frc.org Bible. Got it. Checking it out now. This is Washington Watch. I'm Tony Perkins. The website, TonyPerkins.com. Remember, tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern, pray, vote, stand. Pray, vote, stand. You can find out more about it. Go to TonyPerkins.com. All right. The, uh, you're going to hear me say this for the next 70 days. This is an election of contrast. It is a contrast in the political conventions that we see happening, what took place last week, what took place last night, and what will take place tonight. It is a contrast in the political candidates without, I mean, that's just beyond question. And it is a contrast in party platforms and policies. Now, not a lot of people talk about that or focus on it, even though it's extremely important. It is something we talk a lot about because it does govern what the parties, the politicians do. In fact, uh, in a study of these party platforms, as I've mentioned before, the parties follow these platforms about 80% of the time. And one of the clearest areas of contrast between the Republican and the Democratic parties is on the issue of life. And joining me to talk more about this is Marjorie Dannenfelser, president of Susan B. Anthony List. And she is also out today with a new book, Life is Winning, Inside the Fight for Unborn Children and Their Mothers. Marjorie, welcome back to Washington Watch. Oh, thank you, Tony. I love being with you. Well, congratulations on the new book. Um, it, it's, uh, you know, just shows the momentum that is building across America on the issue of life. I mean, we are so close to seeing America becoming a predominantly pro-life nation again, aren't we? That's right. And, you know, um, Tony, I'll, I'll embarrass you a little bit. Just, I want everybody to know that there are a few people that you can work really closely with who really understand what clarity and contrast, like you were just talking about in elections, means how to take an issue from kind of a political orphan, which I believe the life issue was around 2012, and put it at the center of leadership and politics and put a, put people, the people behind it, churches behind it. And you're one of those people. And I've worked with Tony. I've worked with you, Tony. I'm just, I just want to this book is about about that move from 2012 or so to really trying to make this the, um, the 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 movement that it deserves in the center of politics. And you 
every step along the way, we have meetings all the time, and I'll always think, I wonder what Tony's thinking about this. And um, and and always, I find that you are, you have been the most ambitious and also the most realistic in bringing and putting the ball forward. And without leaders like you, without this president, without this vice president and senators, we wouldn't be looking at the transformation of the courts right now and talking about what a post-Roe world looks like. And that's because we took it seriously. We take this movement seriously as a death to a child. And so it deserves the best political acumen that can be. So that's what it's about. Well, I, I thank you for that, Marjorie. I will just say this. There's no one that's more laser-focused on the life issue here in Washington, D.C., and effective than, than you are. And that's why uh, we do work closely with uh, Susan B. Anthony, Liss, and Marjorie, because I can trust them. Uh, I, I know that you're not going to uh, to run when the, the fight gets tough. And I've told my team that. I said there's one thing. I want Marjorie in those meetings because uh, I know she's got my back. And, and when the and, and sometimes people don't realize That's right. we have to stand up to our own. Um, I say our own. I mean, we're, we're seen obviously from a policy standpoint more aligned with the mm-hmm. Republicans, but sometimes we have mm-hmm. to stand up to them and hold them accountable because That's they exactly will right. run from this issue. That's right. And, you know, there are a lot of issues that Republicans care about. This transcends all parties and and, um, all provincial interests. But sometimes, yeah, other interests, economic or otherwise, they they get elevated to the um, the diminishment of of the life issue and sometimes can sort of be used to help build a coalition to pass – Stuff that we that we're not necessarily focused or connected on, and we and what we can never be is used for other people's purposes. And the the cause is too important. Those the children and the rights of those little ones um, have to always be um, focused on per se who they are and why they're so important. So those battles are that are sort of invisible. I've, I mean, I've always had the pleasure of – I know where you are, Tony. I know what you're thinking. <laughs> I feel like I do. And every time I feel like we um, end this battle to go from a political orphan um, to a really strong, muscular movement where we are really on the edge of saving millions of lives, those little pieces along the way are vital, every single step. Um and I know you know, because you're doing it every day like I am, who really are saving uh, these children are the people going door to door in battleground states right now. And that's who are talking to people about this issue, making sure that they vote absentee or vote on the day of um, uh, voting, because just a handful of people are going to determine this entire election and therefore save millions of lives or not. Or yeah, lose so millions true. of lives in the future. It's amazing. So true. And, and, and this work has brought us to this point where the, the Republican Party has fully embraced the life issue. The, the party platforms, as we have uh, as we now have them, there could not be a clear contrast on this issue. That's right. That's right. And that is, as you said in the intro here, an incredible gift. In the book, I talk about a lot of the things, a lot of means you were into, Tony, and some interactions that I've had um just with the president and with the vice president all along the way and stories that I think people surprise people. One, I mean, I think this president has been full of surprises. I mean, he was a Manhattan financier playboy who turned out to be, and pro-choice, who turned out to be operationally the most pro-life president in history and will make a difference for the future. Mm-hmm. And um, 
what a surprise. And to really get to know this president has been one of the blessings of of um, of the work that we do together. Um, and it's it's fun to talk about that in the book, but it's also just exciting to see the moment we're in. And what did you say? How many days? I forgot the count from today. Is it 70? Tomorrow, tomorrow is 70 days till Election Day. Yeah. Yeah. Every day is going to be like five. So time to work hard. A lot to get done. And folks can, can pick up a, a copy of the book out today at, at bookstores, but also the website is lifeiswinningbook.com, right? Amen. Okay. <laughs> Thank All right. You. Well, we hope That's we hope it. it does well. We're going to encourage people to pick up a copy of it. And, Marjorie, thank you for the great work you do, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you for your help, Tony. I really appreciate it. All right. Folks, get a copy of the book, Life is Winning. Lifeiswinningbook.com or go to TonyPerkins.com. Either way, but get a copy of the book. All right, coming up next, the Republican National Committee issuing a resolution regarding the SPLC. That's next. Don't go away. Oh, man. What's wrong? I just missed Washington Watch with Tony Perkins, and our congressman was going to be on the show today. Oh, that's not a big deal. What do you mean? Well, you can always catch the replay of the day's show. How's that? With the Stand Firm app. Yeah? Yep, you can catch that day's program and so much more. You can contact your elected officials on campaigns and policies that are important to you with the Take Action tab. You can listen to Washington Watch with Tony Perkins live and play previous episodes while conveniently going about your day. You can access the Washington Update, informative blogs, tweets, and critical campaigns on the main feed so you can stay up to date on local and national news. Wow, I definitely use that. How do you find the app? Just visit frc.org slash app and download or search Stand Firm in the App Store. Okay, that's Stand Firm. Yep, Stand Firm. How do you know all this? Because I'm a SageCon, but that's another story. Huh? Are you looking to grow closer in your relationship with Jesus and in your knowledge of God's Word? Family Research Council has released a new three-part series titled Three Ways to Read the Bible. In this series, Patrina Mosley, FRC's Director of Life, Culture, and Women's Advocacy, shares helpful ways to be encouraged and directed by God's truth through studying and applying the Bible's text. Now's the time to get to know God through His Word by looking into the Bible and learning what it says about God, humanity, and the power of Scripture. During this season of isolation, devote time to the Lord and seek out His meaning for you. In times of crisis and any time, this blog series is a great primer on opening your eyes and heart to Him through His Word. Check out this helpful resource and learn how to read the Bible with not just your eyes, but your heart. To learn more, visit frcblog.com. That's frcblog.com. Welcome back to Washington Watch. I'm your host, Tony Perkins. So glad to have you with us. The website, TonyPerkins.com. If you're on Twitter or Parler, it is at T Perkins. All right, let me remind you, tomorrow night, tomorrow marks 70 days from the election. And so we're launching a 10-week initiative, Pray, Vote, Stand. And we'll have our first broadcast be coming to you every Wednesday night for the next 10 weeks. Tomorrow night is the first 8 p.m. 
Eastern Time. I'll be joined by uh, a number of special guests, uh, former Congresswoman Michelle Bachman, uh, Republican Study Committee Chairman Mike Johnson will be joining me as well. 8 p.m. tomorrow night, prayvotestand.org. All right, we've been talking about, I uh, was at the RNC uh, convention yesterday, Sunday and yesterday, came back last night uh, here to D.C. And one of the pieces of um, work, if you will, that the Republicans engaged in was passing uh, resolutions. And one of those resolutions dealt with the scandal-plagued Southern Poverty Law Center, um, a resolution condemning that organization. Join me now to talk more about this, senior editor of PGA Media, Tyler O'Neill. Tyler, welcome back to Washington Watch. Hey, glad to be here. Thanks, Tony. And I should mention that you have written the book on Southern Poverty Law Center, so you know the organization I would say inside and out. You've not been inside the organization, but you cert- certainly uh, examined and studied them. Uh, tell us about this resolution. Yeah, so the resolution was really heartening. I was, I was glad to see uh, that the RNC took the Obama-Biden administration to task for uh, having the Department of Homeland Security uh, receive information from the Southern Poverty Law Center. And the the statement said the SPLC is a radical organization and the federal government should not view this organization as a legitimate foundation equipped to provide actionable information to DHS or any other government agency. And most importantly, the resolution noted the attack on FRC uh, back in 2012, where you had that deranged gunman who looked at the SPLC list of quote-unquote hate groups and said, all right, well, I'm going to choose one, went to FRC's headquarters there in downtown D.C. and tried to open fire and kill everyone and put a Chick-fil-A chicken sandwich by their heads. And, I mean, you were you were in the office at the time. Uh, mm-hmm. I have a whole chapter on this in my book. Uh, but it's that was really the key moment that told many of us on the conservative Christian right that uh, – the SPLC is a dangerous organization. And, of course, they condemned the attack, but they've continued to this day to list FRC as a hate group. And I think that's particularly noteworthy and uh, terrifying. Well, it's interesting. I the, the day after the shooting, I went and held a press conference on the, the curb out in front of our building to send a very clear message. We were not going anywhere. You couldn't intimidate us. You can't scare us. And I, I called out the SPLC because I knew that their, their fingerprints had to be on it somewhere, somehow. Now, I was, I was roundly criticized by the media, suggesting that the SPLC had anything to do with it. And then there was the confession of Floyd Corkins, who, in fact, said that it was the SPLC's map. Now, despite that, despite the fact that they have been through scandal upon scandal and, and the fact that they had to fire the chairman and the president had to resign, of the organization, the media still holds them up as a legitimate source. Yeah, it's, it's kind of it's really disturbing. Uh, so you know, last last March, they, as you noted, they fired the co-founder Morris Dees. Uh, they really cleaned house at the top. And uh, then hey, wait a minute, tell, tell our listeners t- tell our listeners why what 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 prompted that? Yes, yes, it's particularly important. So. Uh, Staffers actually at the SPLC signed a letter asking for Morris Dees to be booted. And this is following decades 
of uh, sexual harassment and racial discrimination claims made against these in particular, but other other leading staffers as well, and kind of against the organization as a whole. Uh, black former staffers in the 1990s had called the FPLC a plantation, that they were routinely denied the ability to rise within the ranks of the organization. And amidst this scandal, after Diaz was fired, former employees came forward admitting their complicity in the con to bilk northern liberals of their money by exaggerating hate. And among those things that they were exaggerating hate about was the hate group accusation, which you know includes mainstream conservative and Christian groups. Uh, despite all this and despite multiple defamation lawsuits filed against the FPLC and two that uh, won multi-million dollar judgments, uh, the media still routinely trusts them on matters of especially the hate group accusation. And you'll see, you know, that last year they booted Act for America. They, the Many media outlets cited the SPLC and the Council on American Islamic Relations in attacking Act for America as a quote-unquote anti-Islamic hate group or anti-Muslim hate group. And got the uh, ban from Mar-a-Lago at that place. Um, very quickly, Tyler, on the way out, if, if the, the hypocrisy here is uh, is striking, but if if this had been a conservative group that had engaged in the very things that they were championing against, would the media overlook it and treat them the way they have the Southern Poverty Law Center? Oh, the media would be following them day after day, night after night, making sure they never had a voice. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. Tyler O'Neill, thanks so much for joining us. All right, folks, to find out more about Tyler's book, go to TonyPerkins.com. Coming up next, we'll talk with Dr. Taryn Clark about the left and how they politicized treatment for the coronavirus, and it could be costing us lives. That's next here on Washington Watch. Don't go away. The rapidly changing moral landscape of the 21st century presents a challenge for Christians committed to biblical sexual ethics. An uprising against morality has overturned centuries of norms concerning the family, marriage, and human sexuality. Secular culture is not the only challenger of Christian sexual ethics. Increasingly, theologically liberal churches and denominations are rejecting the church's historic teaching on marriage. As a result, Christians are facing increased pressure to compromise the Bible's teaching on human sexuality. How should Christians who are committed to God's Word respond to these challenges? What does the Bible teach about sexuality? Family Research Council has a new publication that presents the biblical principles for human sexuality. It lays out a survey of culture, scripture, and church history that will help pastors and all Christians meet modern-day challenges to biblical sexuality with truth and love. To access this publication, visit frc.org sexuality. Again, that's frc.org sexuality. In today's culture, it can be difficult for men to navigate what it means to be a man and to find clear models of masculinity and manhood. There are many competing ideas out there and even confusion around the basic concepts of gender and sex. Where can boys, young men, husbands, and fathers find a model of manhood, leadership, and strength in today's culture of confusion? This is Tony Perkins inviting you to join me at a Stand Courageous Men's Conference led by men who are seasoned, compassionate leaders who understand the issues of the day. 
These issues will invest in unpacking our role as defenders, providers, instructors, and battle buddies so that men can have generational influence as a chaplain inside and outside the home. Join us at one of our upcoming events in Texas, Louisiana, Florida, or Virginia. Learn more about Stand Courageous and find an event near you at StandCourageous.com. That's StandCourageous.com. StandCourageous.com. With horrifying acceleration in recent years, verified reports of murders, rapes, mutilations, and kidnapping of Christians in Nigeria have persistently increased. These attacks are frequently accompanied by the torching of homes, churches, villages, and agricultural fields. A July 15, 2020 headline reports that over 1,000 Nigerian Christians were killed in the first six months of 2020. This is in addition to 11,000 Christians who have been killed since June 2015. News stories about the assaults in Nigeria are rarely reported in mainstream media outlets. But when they are, they're regularly explained away as effects of climate change, local feuds, or religious wars for which both sides bear equal responsibility. For more information about the persecution of Christians in Nigeria, read FRC's publication, The Crisis of Christian Persecution in Nigeria, at frc.org slash Nigeria. I'm Tony Perkins, and you're listening to Washington Watch. The website is TonyPerkins.com. Again, let me remind you, tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time, PrayVoteStand.org. You can join us for a special 30-minute program marking the 70th day prior to the election, a 10-week push to find out more. Go to PrayVoteStand.org. All right, uh, as John Hines, the reporter, One American News, was talking about earlier, last week the Democratic Convention you know, talked about the coronavirus. I mean, if they didn't have corona and Trump, they wouldn't have had anything to talk about because they had no vision. They didn't want to talk about their policies. But it's becoming very evident that the coronavirus has become a, a, a good political tool. Now, the problem is that as this has been politicized, it is having an impact on the lives of people. And quite possibly, people are dying as a result of this issue, this virus being politicized. Now, many of you recall the viral video of a press conference of doctors speaking on various treatments for the coronavirus. The video was swiftly, swiftly removed after about 17 million views just in, in a number of hours. Uh, but the message is still out there, and it's something that must be discussed. And joining me now to talk about this is one of the doctors who's been on the program before but was a part of that cadre of doctors, Dr. Taryn Clark, um, she is uh, joining us now by phone. Dr. Clark, welcome back to Washington Watch. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate that being back on your show. Well, it's good to see you uh, last week. And, and I, you know, I'll, I'll take care of the politics and talk about that. But I just from a, from a medical standpoint, you, you touched on this last time. And I just want to see if this continues to be the case where the, the treatments that have shown to be effective by a number of physicians uh, for the coronavirus, are we still seeing the politicization of the, the, the treatments that are out there? To some extent, it, you know, it's still out there. And I, you know, we see in everything, the more we repeat a lie, it eventually becomes the truth and people start quoting that. So I think that part is still out there. 
But I will say that some of the pharmacy boards, the state pharmacy boards, are pulling back a little and clarifying that there's no restriction on prescribing hydroxychloroquine. Um, the FDA has taken a very small step backwards from the statements that they made um, against hydroxychloroquine. So I think we are seeing a little bit of loosening, loosening up on that. Um, to, to a large extent, the damage was done because patients are terrified in many instances of that medicine. And on the other side of the coin, you have patients who have been taking that for decades, lupus patients, um, who are saying, are you kidding? I've been on this medicine forever. You meet people who've gone to Africa and they go, oh, yeah, I took that medicine 20 years ago. They gave it to me. They didn't check an EKG and they sent me to Africa. So, you know, I think that um, from a physician perspective, we are getting to restore our ability to make the choices with our patients and for our patients that are we think are appropriate. Um, so I think that's easing up a little bit. Is that going to take on a national um, presence where it becomes the standard of therapy in this disease? I don't think that can happen, and that's unfortunate. So the good news here is because of those that pushed back against those that wanted to squash uh, those doctors who actually had established a track record of treatment with, uh, like, hydroxychloroquine and, and other um, regimens, that, that, that now that is, as you said, they're loosening up. So there's success on that mm-hmm. front by speaking up and pushing back. But yes. some of the damage has already uh, been done. What, what do you see on the horizon with this? I mean, we've got, I think, four vaccinations uh, in phase three trials. Uh, what, how is that unfolding? That I find a little frightening. And, and I first have to, you know, I find myself all the time saying I'm not an anti-vaxxer and most physicians are not. But I will say so many of the physicians that I interact with are saying, you know, we've never seen a vaccine produced this quickly. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of us who are questioning, do we want to subject to ourselves to something that was so rushed? Um, it, it, it's a little bit frightening in that regard. And, and I, you know, I'm one who takes a flu shot every year, but the, the flu shot was developed. It was safety tested for years and years, and they tweak it a little bit each year. It's not as if they can get the flu vaccine um, right. every year. And so, you know, one of the things I look back at is, you know, we had SARS-CoV-1 in the early 2000s. We still don't have a vaccine for that. And, you know, it's not as if virology labs haven't been working on a vaccine. They work on vaccines for every virus we know about. And so, you know, if we don't have success with that in 15 years, I am just very suspicious and nervous about a vaccine that's coming out, you know, 9, 10, even 18 months after the virus was characterized. I I just, you know, and especially in a field where virus manufacturers have been completely shielded from any possible liability. Um, There are a couple red flags for me. I, as one, would rather, you know, in my late 40s, um, I would rather have the virus any day of the week than take the vaccine. Um, And I I know there are a lot of people who are saying, where's the chicken pox party? You know? Um, I would rather get immunity. And in an all this discussion of mandatory vaccine, I don't hear anybody saying, if you have antibodies, you, you're, you don't have to take it. And yeah. to have a vaccine that's mandatory for adults, that's not based on their occupation. You know, we've had some employers require flu vaccines for healthcare workers. 
there's a you know that it, there's a clear reason behind that. That's a very safe, well-known flu. I mean, a vaccine. It's unprecedented to have mandatory vaccinations for adults. That the only way to put some teeth in following up on that would be through the workplace, through travel. I think it's frightening for our civil liberties to look at that huge step um, in vaccinations. We have, we have never been in that realm before. Right. And I'm going to unpack that in a minute with my next guest. But that just that alone, this idea that we would mandate it, and suggests to me that there is, well, there's two things. One, it's the fear that I think has been manufactured in large part, not saying that the virus is not real and doesn't have an effect. It does. I, ha- I had it. I'm fine. I've yeah. got the T-shirt. I, I made it through. The, the, <laughs> but the reality is, is it, it is it has spread fear. It has been politicized. And we're seeing actions taken that people would surrender fundamental civil liberties because of the fear right. that has been manufactured. I completely agree with you. Completely. And the other concept is by the time we have, by the time this really gets out there, it's probably going to be early 2021. Same with Joe Biden's mask mandate if he gets elected. You know, the numbers in 2021 are going to be way down from where we are. So we're not going to be in a panic mode where we have to all get vaccinated. Well, let's hope not. Well, I I actually think the panic, I think the panic will, I think the panic will end the day after the election. Uh, because it'll no longer be a political tool, quite frankly. That's my view. Right. Uh, right. I think it'll pass right. very, very quickly. Uh, right. Dr. Clark, thank you so much for joining us. It was always great to talk with you. It was great to see you last week. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for having me. Talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. All right. I, I want to continue this conversation about the mandatory nature that's being discussed about this vaccine. In fact, the commissioner of health in Virginia saying he intends to require people to be immunized for the coronavirus once the vaccine becomes available. As Dr. Clark was just saying, this is unprecedented. Joining me now to talk more uh, about this is Dr. Jeff Barrow, Senior Vice President for Bioethics and Public Policy. Uh, Dr. Barrow, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be with you, Tony. All right, so you you probably caught a little bit of my conversation there at the end uh, with uh, Dr. Clark um, this is a, a very real threat. We have now public officials saying that they're going to mandate, and there's a multitude of ways in which this could be mandated. Uh, tell us about it. Well, they could uh, make it a requirement for uh, all all different types of things, including schools and employers, uh, to get your uh, health benefits at the state level. There's uh, a myriad of ways that they could uh, make it mandatory, but they're using uh, a form of utilitarian thinking, uh, which is basically that the end, the good of society justifies the means, the means being uh, forcing everyone and mandating that everyone get a a vaccination. And, and Utilitarian thinking is always dangerous, and it it frequently causes unexpected results. And in this particular instance, we might have all kinds of safety issues that show up uh, later that uh, we aren't going to know at the beginning of time when this uh, vaccine becomes available, assuming that we'll have one or more available early in 2021. So it's never good to use that uh, form of justification. Well, as Dr. Clark mentioned, this has been accelerated. Normally, it could take anywhere from four to seven years, I assume, to to develop these vaccines. And we're talking here less than a year 
uh, will have a vaccine out. And so there, there, there are certainly a lot of questions that would surround that. Would this be unprecedented in terms of, as Dr. Clark said, mandatory vaccination for adults? I don't know of any other time uh, in my recent memory of, of any vaccination being mandated for everyone, uh, for all adults. I, I just I can't think of an example recently. And the other reason that this would be problematic is the fact that some of these vaccines are created with the use of fetal cell lines. Uh, right. And that, in that fact, is one, causes a moral issue. I think one that is at the that the, uh, the the very first one that is in phase three trials that uh, may be the first out it does if I'm not mistaken have uh, fetal tissue in. Yeah, AstraZeneca's is is one that is is definitely going to use fetal cells uh, in in order to produce the adenovirus, which acts as the carrier. It's it's the mechanism that the vaccine makers are using to take the genetic material into the cells of the body receiving, of the person receiving the, the vaccine. And so that's got a whole moral issue associated with it. This is not new uh, technology, however. There are right. current vaccines out there that right now that that's still use these same fetal cell lines. But, but that that is mandating the vaccine without giving anybody the opportunity that might have an, a moral objection to the vaccine is just really not acceptable. So how do you see this playing out, Dr. Barrows, where this is unprecedented? Of course, as I was just talking about with Dr. Clark, there's this fear that's been manufactured. And so some people will willingly, uh, you know, submit to this. But there are others and and there are a lot of my listeners and and I stand with them. I mean, I'm not an anti-vaccine person, but I I, I think it should be up to the parents and to the individual. I do not think it should be government mandated. How, How will this be resisted? Well, I think that if, in fact, it spreads across the states, I mean, as you talked earlier, Virginia is the first state. Uh, Hopefully it does not spread, and hopefully it doesn't uh, become a federal issue where the federal government begins to uh, mandate it across the country. Uh, It will put uh, a lot of your listeners in a very awkward position where they're going to have to be forced to be uh, either take the vaccine against their will or um, perhaps lose their job, lose their ability to to get health care, lose a lot of their normal rights within society, and I, I think that would be a, a tragedy. I think we need to we need to stop the, the efforts to make it uh, mandatory long before we reach that point. Yeah, and there's a there's a as again as you're pointing out a multitude of ways that this could be mandated where they're not going to you know kick your door down in your house and come in and give you a, a vaccination. But if you want to go to a sporting event. You want to go to the restaurant, you want to go into a public place, you've got to uh, show proof of uh, vaccination. Uh, And and so basically you're excluded until you can prove that you've been vaccinated. But where where does it come in when you have the antibodies? Like, you know, I've had the coronavirus and so I have the the antibodies. Where, Where does that factor into the need for vaccination? That absolutely must be factored in. In fact, I can tell you that in all probability, anybody who has had the virus and has antibodies, their reaction to a vaccine will be a stronger reaction. They will get more of a febrile illness because their body is seeing uh, the vaccine as a renewal of the of the virus of the COVID-19 virus, and so their body is naturally going to react against it. Not that they would become very sick, but they might have several days of a febrile episode of of illness, not feeling well, 
and uh, and so there 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 should be some way of testing people ahead of time whether or not they've had the virus, and then there would be no need to give them the vaccine. Yeah, I, uh, Dr. Barros, I, I I'm more concerned about the fear that has been yeah. generated about the virus than the virus itself. And there's a lot of conspiracy theories that are out there as well. Uh, They're just very wild. Uh, I I would not want anyone to refuse to get the vaccine on the basis of one of these wild conspiracy theories. But if we are forced with a situation where there, there is only one vaccine that is proven to be safe and effective, and that vaccine happens to be one of the ones that was created in part through the use of a fetal cell line from an abortion, I think it's it's just incumbent on our government, state or federal, that would allow the person to to object to getting that vaccine just on religious grounds alone. Uh, I could not agree with you more. Dr. Jeff Barrows, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today and providing uh, insight into an issue that a lot of our listeners care about. My pleasure to be with you. That's Dr. Jeff Barrow, Senior Vice President for Bioethics and Public Policy. We're going to continue to to look more into this issue, talk about it as uh, we move closer to that vaccination. Uh, We'll be exploring, uh, you know, the states that are going to try to pursue this. I do not think the federal government will do it. Uh, There's some constitutional issues there, but we'll talk more about that. Until next time. I leave you with the encouraging words of the Apostle Paul found in Ephesians 6, where he says, when you've done everything you can do, when you've prayed, when you've prepared, and when you have taken your stand, by all means, keep standing. Washington Watch with Tony Perkins is brought to you by Family Research Council and is entirely listener-supported. Portions of the show discussing candidates are brought to you by Family Research Council Action. For more information on anything you've heard today or to find out how you can partner with us in our ongoing efforts to promote faith, family, and freedom, visit TonyPerkins.com. Also, to leave a comment about Washington Watch, call our watch line at 1-866-372-7234. That's 1-866-372-7234.